Hello, and welcome to More Than Money, a podcast that interviews leading professionals to understand how an MBA increased their ability to have a positive impact in the world. My name is Eleanor Huntington. And I'm Amy Tyler. We're both FEMBA, fully employed MBA students at UCLA Anderson. We're interested in the intersection of business education and social impact, and we're excited to have you along for the conversation. Hello, and welcome to More Than Money. Today, we have our guest, Nikki Irvin, with us to talk about her experiences and especially some of the changes she's seen at Impact in the Anderson since her time. But Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization? Well, first of all, let me just say thank you to you, Eleanor. It's exciting to um, connect with the Anderson School and particularly with uh, people who are there now. I'm an alum from the ancient times, the last century. So it's just great to be here. I am Nikki Irvin, member of the class of 1989. And what made that class special was we were the first class after John Anderson made his then legendary gift of $15 million to the school, which was a lot of money once upon a time, <laughs> like a game-changing gift. I'm you know, proudly a member of that class. And for the last 21 years, I've worked in philanthropy, primarily on the giving and grant making side of the equation. We'll talk maybe a little bit about that in the conversation. And I currently serve as managing director of the Civil Society Fellowship, which engages next generation social entrepreneurs in an effort to build so civil discourse across ideological difference. And that's a partnership between the Anti-Defamation League and the Aspen Institute. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen, particularly in the last few years, really important and relevant and comes up in conversations across sectors. So really cool work that you're doing now. But so you started off as a marketing executive for PepsiCo and you completed your MBA. And it seemed at that point, you made a pretty hard pivot into impact. So did you always know that you wanted to go the direction of impact? Was an MBA part of this decision or how did you come to that? I didn't know that I was always heading for an impact career or what back then might've been more commonly referred to as a nonprofit uh, career. I was very, as you, as you referred to, I was very focused on breaking into consumer package marketing. And at the time, PepsiCola was a big recruiter at UCLA Anderson. And I chose to spend my early years there and I had a blast. This was back when people actually drank soda, uh, you know, full sugared soda, not just diet soda, and certainly not, you know, the bottled water that we're so fond of now. And so that made for a great learning experience at Pepsi. And every day we were waking up knowing who our uh, enemy was, big, bad Coca-Cola. And so it was, it was a terrific place to learn. I spent three years there and got very, very homesick 
in my last year, which was 1992. And I was living in New York at the time at Pepsi headquarters. And when the civil unrest happened here in Los Angeles, I decided I had to move back home. And fortunately for me, Nestle was relocating its chocolate division from New York back to Southern California. So I ended up coming home with a job offer to join the chocolate division, but they gave me an interesting option. They said, you could start in chocolate or you can start in pet care. And I actually opted for pet care because at the time it was run by an Anderson alum who was a pretty legendary marketer named John Harris. And so I worked there for three years before the hard pivot into what we now know is a, gosh, a couple of decades and change of for-purpose nonprofit service. Was there a particular moment or realization that you wanted to take that career trajectory into impact or not-for-profit? Yeah, thanks for that, Amy. I, there were a couple of wake-up calls. So I don't know, you were probably pretty young when 9-11 happened, but I, you know, that was one of those days where you woke up thinking it was gonna be another day in your life and you went to bed. Most of us went to bed very, very unsettled. And I would say I had a personal 9-11, not with that level of tragedy, but I had a personal kind of wake up call in the mid nineties when I was still at Nestle, when my mother and youngest brother, I had three brothers, went through a home invasion robbery. And I'm grateful to say they both lived through it, but it was, it was pretty intense. And from that day on, I just have lived with this notion that life is short. It's full of sometimes sudden twist of fate. And if you're lucky, you live to tell and reflect on them. And after that, I just decided marketing pet food for Nestle was just not going to be enough for me. And so I started more aggressively volunteering. And by the end of that year, that calendar year, which I think was 94, I had quit that job at Nestle, didn't have a job. And I spent the next year pretty much volunteering, doing project work and reimagining what I wanted to do. And, and I got a call out of the blue from Linda Baldwin, who was then the director of admissions for Anderson. And she asked me to breakfast and suggested that I should think about running the Reardon programs, which back then was still a pretty young program and was fully volunteer led by Linda and others. And they wanted to hire someone full-time to help raise money and to build the programs out. And long story short, I ended up interviewing for and getting that job and I took it. And that was really the the launch pad for me, for me coming into the nonprofit world, learning how to raise money, and then ultimately learning how to give it away. So a little personal tragedy with the, with the situation at home, but you know, family is good. Mom's still around about to turn 90 years old later this year. My younger brother just starting a new chapter in his life as a artist slash art installer. And he has the contracts to install business at, install art at the Getty and LACMA and the Broad and amazing places like that. So there are lots more things I could say about 
living your truth, but I'm just grateful that I had that wake up call and decided to make the hard pivot then. And um, just taking us back into the MBA a little bit more, you mentioned that when you were there, there wasn't a massive program like we get to enjoy today, supporting people that are interested in impact, like Impact at Anderson and some of the classes that are on offer. Was there any conversation around how to support people pursuing that kind of a career? There really wasn't. There were, there were discrete opportunities to be in community service. And interestingly, the one that I chose was to be a mentor in the Reardon programs. And I was paired up with a girl who was in high school at the time. And it was a way to connect with community and kind of take myself out of the headspace of accounting and production operations management problem sets and things like that, which I enjoyed, but I always felt called by service. My mom's a retired school teacher. My dad, now late father, he made his career in the the court system here in Southern California. He was a court clerk. And so I think service runs in my blood. And though at the time Anderson didn't have formal classes or even clubs in that way, you know, I just kind of scratched out a way to do it as a mentor and had a kind of a distant fantasy that maybe after 20 years in marketing, I might have a 2.0 career and maybe then like run a nonprofit or something like that. But life clearly had different plans for me and I ended up getting to that 2.0 much earlier. I, I was 36 when I started as president of the Reardon Foundation and that was pretty young for for that role. I was 23 when I started business school, so criminally young, you know. So even though Anderson didn't have the capacity and programming when you were there, you've been able to stay really involved as an alum and really contribute in different ways to the point where Anderson named you one of its most, 100 most inspirational alumni. And I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about both what it means to be celebrated by Anderson and how you see the, the skill sets you learned from your Anderson experience and your MBA experience and the community you built as a student continuing on, even though it's a different trajectory than what you initially imagined. Well, first of all, I'm just, I've worked for at least one of them, John Harris, who I mentioned before, is on that list and a couple of classmates on that list. So I'm still, you know, kind of gulping in humility for for that. And I was, when you started asking the question, I'm looking up in my bookcase because I've got the plaque from that, from that honor. I, I think for me, what it's really always boiling down to is how do I leave a place, whether it's a school or an institution, or in this case, a fellowship, better than I found it. And I think I just learned that from my parents is just, if you're gonna spend time doing something, do it well and give it the honor it deserves. And, and the hard pivot to service, to impact has really been for me, my own personal 
calculation for where I could have the, high, the highest impact. And when I was at Nestle, my success measure was how well did a coupon redeem? And a good coupon was something that had a 2% redemption rate. So we dropped a hundred coupons. If two people redeemed them, I was hitting the mark. And I just thought that is a woefully low bar for success. Maybe not for coupons, but for me and my, my dreams. And so I, I can think of people who've inspired me like John Harris, who he described himself as a P&L man. He knew where every penny was in that Frisky's Pet Care P&L. Or Linda Baldwin, who I also mentioned as the director of admissions, just someone who's so deeply dedicated to excellence in admitting students who can come in and not just be good students in the traditional sense, but people who give back to community. And for me, the, the key to happiness is, this is not my wisdom. I think I heard this uh, or read it in some research that the key to happiness is in spending time with people who are younger than you doing things that are meaningful. So I don't have biological children, but I like to think that the students who I mentor, the fellows who I lead, are, are people who I care for and hopefully leave something with them to think about. It's beautiful. So when we're looking at this space, there's a lot of words that are thrown around now. Impact, social enterprise, for purpose, not for profit. I think you have a particular favorite way of describing the space that we're all working in and a, a, an interesting rationale around that, which we'd love to explore a little bit more with you. Thanks, Amy. I have a distinct allergy to the term nonprofit, even though I use it sometimes still for convenience, just because it's understood that way. But why would you ever define yourself by what you're not? So that's one reason for my allergy. Another reason I tend to not use nonprofit is because nonprofit is a tax status. You know, in the U.S. tax code, it's not meant to describe your financial status. So in other words, a 501c3 organization should have a surplus. It should think about generating resources above and beyond its expenditures. And so profit is absolutely something that has a, a place and is needed in nonprofit or non-governmental organizations. So my preference is for purpose. And I like to define things by what we're for in a more positive sense. And I believe that you, know, you certainly can be in the private sector. When I worked for Nestle and Pepsi, I, I certainly had a purpose. So it's not to say that people working in tech now or, or who are measured against a stock price or a profit and loss statement don't have purpose, but I think the nonprofit sector as many people refer to it, could be more attractive perhaps to people who have had for-profit orientation if they thought of it as for a purpose. And nonprofit's got a bad stigma in many people's minds, and I think it's misunderstood. And oftentimes, here's an SAT word for you, infantilized. 
that a lot of people were so serious about their business careers and raising money and driving profit, then like, I wanna go serve on a nonprofit board and they think it's an easy thing and they can kick their heels up and kind of turn their brains off. No way. I mean, a for purpose, I was on a board call this morning and we're, this particular board is going through a CEO change and it's a very serious time for this $25 million national entity. And if I were to kind of just cheapen it by saying, oh, it's nonprofit and, you know, I can just kind of kick back and not take it seriously, that would just be such a, such a disservice. And I think ultimately disrespectful. So I'm, I, you can tell I'm very biased about <laughs> this sector and this work. And that's why I like to call it for purpose. As the managing director of the Civil Society Fellowship, and you mentioned that a lot of that is around developing leaders that can have ideological differences and talk about them. And I think it's quite interesting when you say you're for something rather than against something, whether that also creates more of a bridge for conversations and sort of helps us be less polarizing, I suppose, in what we say we're doing and find more of those commonalities. I love that. And you're reminding me, Amy, of a fellow who is in our inaugural class, who, when we were interviewing him in his materials uh, and in our conversation, said that he he described himself as pro-life. And part of that was through his religious foundation. And he described himself as pro-women and more particularly advocates for a woman's autonomy over her body. And yet he, through his religious beliefs, felt strongly about the sanctity of life. And I love that example because to me, there's not a zero sum negation of being pro-life and pro-women's autonomy. He's found a bridge in that. And it's amazing that it's a man too, right? So I, this for me is a a wonderful example of what this fellowship seeks to do is to stretch the space for people to be pro things that may seem to be in conflict. I'm thinking a lot about anti-racism lately and I wonder like what would be the pro version of anti-racism? I don't know, would it be pro I don't know. I mean, we could have a great conversation about that. Is it, you know, pro-inclusion, pro-respect, pro-forgiveness? What, what, I mean, there's probably not one convenient um, answer there. Like pro-equity, it could be in so many directions. And it's, it's an interesting point to bring up too, is such as so many organizations, my, the one I work for included, really striving to be an anti-racist organization and trying to do the work that that's involved. But to that point, even in conversations I was a part of today, how do you, it comes up again, the idea of, are we privileging one patient population over another in our efforts to be anti-racist and inclusionary? Uh, So the work that you're doing like with people people very intentionally wanting to have those discussions too and thinking deeply about it. Yeah. 
I, I think there are limits to language too. I think about for purpose and anti-racism and sometimes terms can be too vague or they can be in some people's ears too confrontational and they could be game stoppers, you know? And so I think we always have to find opportunities for people to really be ready to listen and to process in ways that are open and receptive to thinking deeply and processing deeply. It's hard because we're so ready to be triggered as a society and ready to just jump to a point of view, rush to judgment. I would, if I were to have a magic wand in 2021, it would be, all right, count to five, maybe take a breath, imagine someone you love having that point of view and, and maybe taking an extra heartbeat to consider whether or not it's something to at least listen to. You may not have to agree with it, but to consider it. That's what our fellows do. I mean, one of my favorite moments in a session we ran in November was the fellows had read a speech. It was um, President Dwight Eisenhower's farewell speech. And if you were to take his name off of it and to read it, and if I asked you to guess which US president gave that speech, you might guess Jimmy Carter, maybe Bill Clinton. It was talking about the military and um, like great society programs. Not a welfare state, but a sense of care and concern. And I mean, it was Eisenhower, who was like stone cold military general. But those were different times and the fellows were stunned that a Republican military bred president could think and speak that way. Popular president in his time. One of the major reasons that anyone, not even someone interested in impact or purpose, goes to business school, looks into business school, is to become a leader, usually in the business field. But as you were talking about, with the fellows that you're building and all of the mentoring you've done throughout your career, what are some of the like key leadership lessons that you've identified and that you think are critical to people who want to have a life and a career with purpose, whether or not that be officially in the impact space or in the business field with impact on a personal level. Some of it I began to learn in school, in business school, but most of it I've learned since. And I would say, Eleanor, that certainly the harder skills of accounting and budgeting and marketing and finance, they'll always matter. And I like to think that as I particularly come into the for-purpose part of my career, that being able to manage and manage a budget and grow resources has been important. But it's the human stuff that has really mattered most in my time. Within my first six months of becoming president of the Reardon Foundation, I made a decision to cut our budget and cut our staffing. As my predecessor had done just the opposite, had moved us into a, a suite that was 
way beyond our needs and hired staff that was way beyond our needs. And so I had to do some cutting and that required a great deal of empathy and patience and working with lawyers and the skills there of negotiation and maybe empathy, maybe it's not a skill, but an attribute and careful listening, appreciative listening, really, really important and courage. (laughs) I find that that over and over is something that's coming into my work. I, not even two months ago, our fellowship was faced with a boycott by a coalition of nearly 200 nonprofits who are really boycotting, not our fellowship, but boycotting one of the partners of our fellowship, but they started targeting our fellows and they went directly to the fellows to say, hey, you shouldn't be in this fellowship because this affiliates you with this particular organization, which this coalition found a lot of objections to. And the partner that was being boycotted had made a choice to not answer the allegations of the boycott. The boycott started in 2020. And because they ignored these people who launched this boycott, the boycotters were very clever and they came after my fellows. And I decided to go meet with the boycott people. Because I was like, I need to understand who you are who you think you are targeting people who are part of a solution. And so I met, you know, met with them right here on the same Zoom screen. One Friday afternoon, three poor purpose leaders who believe they are right in targeting this particular partner and going after my fellows. Well, guess what? Six fellows withdrew. Six out of 68 withdrew. And the the skill I would say I've had to, the skills are a willingness to deal with people who I could find like, like very little in common with uh, a willingness to listen to people who I think make no sense, have a, a very, very poorly worked out strategy, but still listening. And, and listening to the point where it's painful and hopefully showing respect during that, that conversation. And then ultimately being willing to lose, which I don't know, maybe not, maybe that's humility, I guess. These six, six fellows, I think about them almost every day because it's so hard to get into the fellowship. And like, there are people who I declined to give them space. So it's, willingness to lose and just know don't I don't control it all and maybe there's something to learn from this experience so usually getting an MBA is like one of those those experiences that fortifies your ego and then you go out into the real world and it just gets chipped away over time (laughs) which I think is probably for the better what's coming up for me as you're speaking is that there is a sense of history and longevity in the way you act with courage that is much longer than a statement that lasts three days on Twitter or trend. And and you know, with the backdrop of a pandemic, 
that's affecting us the world over and here in mid 2021, still spiking new variants. It's such a time. I think it is a time to, to practice humility in a, in a sincere way. And I mean, practice in a like, let me just put on my humble hat today, but we're just, we don't have, the species doesn't have the power to change things in a way that we, we'd like to have. And so I think that the listening that you're referring to is really, for me, it's, it's one of the things I'm really watching coming out. It's a legacy of this period in my life is becoming a better listener, becoming more humble. A lot of our colleagues, I'm sure, will join the for purpose movement through their positions on boards, particularly. We see that a lot in MBA graduates that they bring that skill, that expertise, the networks and knowledge into for purpose sector through their board roles, which is quite distinct from working within the organization and being employed as an employee. But any from those skills or attributes that you mentioned before, the negotiation, the empathy, the listening, the courage. Are there any that you would call out specifically for someone that's considering taking on a board role that might not necessarily had that direct experience working in in for purpose? I would definitely double click on the listening, especially if your day job is in the for-profit or private sector. When I was on the UCLA Alumni Association for the broader campus, not just Anderson, we were in a kind of a crossroads where that board was, (laughs) I found this really remarkable, was used to making operational decisions. So even the pricing for membership of the association, the board was deciding and, and having input on things like colors, like that's too light, that's not brewing light blue. And I I looked around and I was like, is this what this board is here to do? Well, yeah, yeah, this is what we do. And I was like, no, that's what staff is here to do. And at the time I was vice president of programs for the California Community Foundation, a grant making institution. And our CEO, she used to say, our board members for the foundation, noses in, fingers out. So they can, they can have their noses in, they can be curious, they can ask questions, but they're not here to do the work. And so when I looked at the UCLA Alumni Association deciding pricing and colors, I was like, noses in, fingers out. We've hired a great staff as a, a board, a nonprofit boards, not unlike a for-profit board, like single greatest responsibility is to ensure the excellence in the executive function, the CEO. You hire and fire, that's what you have. The one like main responsibility to do. Beyond that, strategic input, financial guardianship, but certainly not deciding the color scheme for the logo. So my advice for someone coming into a board experience would be to really take your brain to the strategic level and leave it there and really get to know the business. And if you can get out on a site visit to see what the agency does so you can understand it maybe from the ground up 
so that it's not abstract and definitely don't infantilize it. It's not recreation, it's serious business. Speaking for people who work from nonprofits too, the, I have worked with boards who invest a lot in the color patterns or like the meals that you're serving at a dinner. And it is true, it's, and I love this idea of if a board is really functional, it's trust that it's trusted, it's hiring decisions and how that plays out. Yes. And the idea of infantilizing people at any level takes away the respect, the understanding of the position, the idea of the job itself. So I think starting, it sounds like what you are almost saying with the site visits with really learning about the organizations and causes that people begin to care about. It is, you mentioned that you volunteered a lot and that was how you found what you wanted to do and as an entry point. I will share this caveat. Some can be very board driven because they might be super small. They may not have the budget to hire staff. And so they have a quote working board. And if that's their structure, then yes, get involved with the menu selection for the gala or the color scheme on the website. But generally speaking, if it's an agency large enough to be staffed, then let the staff do its best. And, and you, you brought up the word trust, Eleanor. There's a movement now in philanthropy called trust-based philanthropy. And it's just that, it's, it's foundations and donors learning, this sounds strange, but learning how to trust and empower the agencies and the, the for-purpose for organizations that they're funding in a way that trusts the staff, that, that empowers the staff to follow its best guidance and its best practice. And it's amazing that we have to teach grant makers how to trust, but we do. And this idea of trust is becoming part of the common parlance too. I even think about Mackenzie Scott mm. and how, how she started a lot of conversations in the impact space about how frequently do organizations need to report and the amount of energy and effort and staff time that goes into producing reports, but a lot of times get mailed out and never open and never with the level of detail. And part of this could be people infantilizing the work of nonprofits or the people behind it. Because I've seen my dad read company statements from front to cover, but he's never done that for any place he's donated money. But, <laughs> and then you think about the staff time that goes into creating that. Ooh. So this idea yes. of how do we think about this staff time? How do we think about encouraging people to give without restrictions? I, I, I'm hopeful that trust-based philanthropy, trust in general is something that can, you know, can multiply and grow because there's just too much work. I mean, the, the, the pandemic has only multiplied the need out there. And if you're anywhere in LA and you know, you're seeing the crisis of unaffordable housing and people living in encampments in tents, I mean, that, that's just a representation of what's going on in the sector. The need has never been greater. And so 
why should any donor want the Venice Family Clinic worried about writing a report versus how to house the next family or to get them the health care they need? I mean, any business person's got to be rationally clear on what the priorities are, but sometimes they just have to be reminded of what, okay, we all have our roles. Your role is to give. Our role is to, you know, turn those funds into services efficiently. Let us do that. Although picking up on that too, when you said your dad, you know, he reads it from like front to back and trust comes when you understand the objective that someone's setting out to achieve and there is a level of accountability within that too and you can trust the organization yeah and I do want to pick up on that that I don't think we create trust through producing 100 page reports but we do produce trust when as an organization we know our theory of change what we're setting out to achieve and we can communicate that and if we fail like if we have the metrics in place and we don't reach them that we do report that and say okay here's what we learned here's how we're adjusting and I'm highly critical of myself and the sector. I want to make it as good as possible. And that's kind of my approach. But I do think we have a lot. We're often not clear what our metrics for success are. And we often feel very, I don't know if it's shame or if it's like, we don't want to let people down, but we, we, we're not very good at reporting when we don't achieve what we set out to achieve. And I do think that that comes hand in hand with the level of trust that people feel towards not-for-profits. It's a bit of a cycle there. It's part of an evolution from the transactional to the relational. And in, in many relationships, the donor agency relationship has been trans- transactional. The donor gives money for the family clinic to produce more hours of care or a healthier uh, neighborhood. And we have to reduce that to widgets, right? So like you were saying, to, to be accountable and not to dismiss the importance of being able to quantify impact. That's always going to be important. We can say, oh, wow, 51% of adults in LA County have been vaccinated. It's important for us to be able to quantify how close to herd immunity our city and county is, but we can't do it at the neglect of the intangible measures um, of health that kind of defy numbers or the, the fact that we are building a relationship that's trust-based so that we can give bad news when there's bad news to give. I, I was on a board call earlier this week and one of my colleagues said, no happy talk. Don't just try and snowball us and give us all the good sweetness and light stuff. Tell us when things are not going well or where you need help. And I, was, I looked at him on the Zoom screen and I was like, That's right, we need a culture of truth and truth-telling and accountability in a way that's solution-oriented and not punitive. We have to work on that. And I'm happy to say I was back on the phone with that same agency this morning. This is the same one that's going through the CEO uh, transition. So we're on the phone with them a lot. And we asked the interim lead a question. And she said, in transparency, no, we haven't done that. And I was like, that's a good sign. Finding ways to address the fact that when there's a lack of trust, there's also often the presence of fear. Because what I, what I see from profits is a lot of times if they 
they don't trust their board. They don't trust their donors to continue with them if they're not always progressing and scaling up. And so with this presence of this pervasive fear, it's, if we don't get it right on the first try, the funding will get pulled. People will not only lose their jobs, our patients or clients will stop receiving the critical care and services they need. At the same time, too, it, it, the current system relies on donors in this kind of a lame guilt because it's the idea you're throwing money at systems change without actually considering how to change the system. It's a lot, it's very, in many ways, it's easy to give money in the hope that something happens. And if you don't see something tangible within your lifetime, I think a lot of people have issues being like, well, I gave $5 million to homelessness and there's still people living on the streets in Los Angeles. Whereas the idea that you could create a system very intentionally and not see the longer term effects, because even to the point you brought up earlier, as horrible as it is, what with your family and with your personal experience, it, I was just thinking the number of people who've been affected by someone who set out to harm your family and the number of people who in a way have been affected for the good because of that. It's just, it's such a strange kind of duality. And I, and I don't mean to minimize that pain, but it's incredible to think like if you would not have ended up even at the civil society and all of the work you did beforehand, but how would that have changed the trajectory of many people's existences? Mm. That's amazing. I've never really thought about it that way, that concretely, Eleanor, that that decision, I certainly thought about it personally, like I'm not feeling fulfilled, worried about coupon redemption, you know, and my mom nearly, you know, lost her life in this process. So what am I, I I, I, I haven't had, and that's God, almost 30 years ago, but that's, that's the opportunity each of us has as leaders to think about how we're going to leave it better than we found it, whether that's a family, a foundation, a neighborhood, a company, a nation. A master's in business administration is really like a narrow, too narrow a description. It's a bit back to the titles, back to the words. I mean, if it were the master's of community benefit or public-private partnership, which actually it kind of approximates what Yale used to use as its MBA and MPPM. But I'm happy to see the evolution of the Anderson School and other business programs thinking more broadly about impact, thinking more broadly about what your responsibility is as a leader to not just extract and do what's good for you, but to think about what's good for a greater cross-section of society. A little personal tribute. When I was at Anderson, I did not have parking, like many UCLA students. And I lucked into a carpool with a friend, Kathy Daniels, who was at law school while I was at business school. And Kathy is going to be memorialized on Saturday. She recently passed. She was a terrific lawyer for the Writers Guild here in LA and ultimately went on to become chief of staff for Spelman College in Atlanta. 
and left a lot of places better than she found it. So whether it's a JD or an MBA or both or neither, there are ways for us to serve. I feel like we've come into a, a beautiful full circle back to the MBA, which is where we started. So I just want to say thank you. And I know for people when they're listening to this, they're going to want to say thank you to you as well. Is there a good place to follow your thinking, your work, or reach out to you if anyone has anything to say or express? Well, thank you for thank you for this opportunity. It's been a delightful conversation and you, you left me with some things to think about and appreciate. So that's it's a good exchange. I'm starting to write on Medium through the Civil Society Fellowship. I'm not a super rabid social media poster, but I'm on Twitter at Nikki Nick. So at N-I-K-E-N-I-K. CivilSocietyFellowship.org is our website. And so if there are folks out there who are 25 to 45 who are making a difference, in their community and are interested, come learn more about us there. And we have an open and rolling nomination cycle for, for that fellowship. We're excited to be back in person late this fall. It's been amazing, a real, a real honor to speak with you. And really, as you described your superpower, telling your truth and eliciting that truth from others I definitely feel that way after this conversation. So really appreciate it and look forward to learning more, learning more from you and continuing the journey. Thank you both. And I just have to say some of my best moments were when I was making the least amount of money. So your title, more than money, there have been 1995, 2008, 2009. Those are years for me that I was intentionally unemployed, but thinking about value in life. So thank you for what you're both doing. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and invite you to subscribe and leave a review. You can find both of us on LinkedIn. We welcome your questions, thoughts, and any suggestions for people that we should chat to. And finally, here's to making and measuring impact.